one of Britain's brightest young literary stars. In fact, he's so bright that he has had to come and live in New York um, because that's where all the really bright people live. Um, his novels, Who is Mr. Satoshi and Joy, have been translated into dozens of languages. He's here tonight, though, to talk about his new novel, High Dive, um, which has received not one but two just let's just say this not one but two amazing reviews um in the new york times um the story is told by three very different characters um it's a take on the events leading up to and around the attempted assassination of margaret thatcher so the bombing of the grand hotel that polly was just talking about in brighton in 1984 and it tells a story from three very different perspectives um he's here tonight to talk about it please welcome the fantastic jonathan lee Um, so I'm going to read a couple of pages uh, about a character who is nicknamed Moose. And he works in the Grand Hotel in Brighton with his daughter. And in this scene, they're at a swimming pool in Brighton. And he used to be kind of in shape, and he's let himself go to seed a little bit. So I think that's all you need to know, and you just need to imagine that this whole room is a public swimming pool, and that Damien is in his swimming trunks. But still in shape. But like 1980s swimming shots. Okay, okay. Like real budgie smugglers. And you would definitely slide. Yeah, the budgie okay. smugglers. Yeah. Thanks. Do you guys know what a budgie is? That might be lost. On that reference might be lost. What do they call them here? A parakeet? A parakeet smuggler. Parakeet. Doesn't really sound as good, does it? No. Anyway. A parrot, Claire. A cockatoo. Just the one. Jonathan Lee, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> Just thinking about the swimming chunks. <laughs> 7 a.m. in the public pool, making good on his promise. Exercise, exercise. While he was exercising, he was doing as his daughter advised. Around him were splashes and shouts and the clunky suck of wet feet walking. And shoulder deep in water, a thought came unrequested. Why not try a dive? It had been a long time since Moose's diving days, and confidence gets thin. He couldn't picture himself doing the somersaults of old, but neither did he feel he belonged in the shallow end over there with the loose-skinned oldies discussing cream teas and cancers. These men were the work of a half-hearted taxidermist. Age had just emptied them out, and five breathless lengths he'd spent trying to keep up with his daughter, and it dampened a guy's esteem to be panting after just five lengths. He hauled himself out of the pool and joined the queue for the tower, a line of lean boys waiting for a dive. Wearing swimming trunks rescued from his 30s, he was a magnet for their smirks, but fair enough. It was nice to be a magnet for something. <laughs> there was a time when his stomach was a thing of alien precision, crunches, kettlebell, windmills, prone plank, and would any of these kids believe it? And why were they even awake at this hour? He thought the lady over there might be a teacher of some sort. Overhead, a body fell through the air. Now, the high dive platform was a long gray tongue stretching out from the top of the tower, 10 meters, three stories high, a near vertical metal ladder was the only way up, and he stood in line, and he tried to pretend he was still bored. 
Freya swam to the edge of the pool and watched him head bobbing a beautiful person he'd made. And in response, he extended his spine, puffed out his chest, becoming father-shaped. She continued swimming, touching the wall, turning, breaking away, all of her freedom unthinking. Last night's ale was thudding in his head now, squashing fine memories of mozzarella. <laughs> when it came his turn to climb, each rung felt cold and hard and oddly unfamiliar under his feet, and he took two rest stops to let out his smoker's cough. Above him, the grubby glass ceiling, September clouds breaking up beyond it, sunlight restless on tiles. And there used to be a second pool next door where the women had to go. A few years ago, they floored it over for badminton. Up high now, he could hear the dull pop-pop of the shuttlecock, the scribble squeak of fast-moving shoes. Blinking, he clambered to stand. That first look around is such a shot of eerie beauty. It took him straight into his past. Chlorine gave the air up here a hazy, uncrackable quality. Everything was a chemical blue. The only higher creature was a seagull relaxing in the rafters, and trapped and relaxed, it made no sense to Moose. The kid in front of him had loosely knitted limbs, that slouchy bellboy way of making youth seem like a secret. And when he reached the end of the platform, he pulled a pair of red goggles over his mop of dark hair, and he turned and he said, do you think my watch will make it? This says, like, 10 meters resistant? Hmm. Should be okay, Moose said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As red goggles retied the cords of his shorts, Moose inevitably gave in to the impulse to look down. He was surprised to find himself beginning to reel, arms out for balance, take a breath. With slow caution, he glanced again a number of colored floats and armbands down there now, the landlord of the cricketers flirting with a hefty lady. Freya was standing on the tiled lip of the pool, arms crossed. This was a place of echoes and the achievement of private targets. If someone's foot touched your foot down there, they apologized profusely. <laughs> Red Goggles was finally primed to jump. Fear does not exist in this dojo! He cried. <laughs> it's a Karate Kid reference. <laughs> and with that mysterious announcement, he cannonballed out of sight. He wailed all the way down, and the impact when it came was closer to a crash than a splash. Sparks of water flew up. The surface healed. Always does. The way the warm platform eats up the evidence of your presence the way it shrinks your footprints to the size of a child's and then an animal's and then a nothing. The water was a tiny cool blue sheet that seemed in these moments to want to break your smallest bones. His heart was beating light and fast, a shift of cloud through half the pool into shadow. On the tip of the platform were two dusky oval shapes formed by all the feet that had gone before. He settled his soles on these ovals. He blinked to stop the walls turning. He did his first high dive at the age of 12, looking at his own awkward knees and rubbing his sweaty palms against his stomach. His father cheering him on from below. His father who seemed to come alive when watching his son succeed. A man usually so carefully contained within himself, shy and jokey and perhaps a little bitter. Sharp features that made his moods look worse than they were. 
Hurl yourself into the soundless blue or take the ladder back down. No, 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 and yes, yes, yes. Oh, fuck it. He always was an overthinker. <laughs> Moose was only 45 and there was nothing much wrong with his muscles and he now found the arrogance to bounce, to ask the air for eloquence. Just like he used to do over and over when competing at a meet and as his feet began to leave the platform, he knew he was getting only half the push he used to get but he was up now, up. Blood was hurtling through his body, the friction of travel was in his teeth. Yeah, he thought. This is what it's like. Loosely bound to the room around him now, held by no ties at all, everything was hushed and hesitant as it is before an accident. And he drew his knees into his chest, a messy somersault, fingertips touching shins, sky, tiles, the whole gleaming ceiling of this old public pool. His body thinned as he arced down into the tank with the beauty, the overdetermination of a dream back straight and more or less toes together, hands angled to make a hole he could climb inside. The water opened without protest. The warm green world took his weight. Underwater advice from his old coach Wally always came to mind. Bending your back gets your shins to vertical. Spreading your arms stops air bubbles breaking upward. Heart beating quick in the deep, feeling himself starting to smile, water creeping in through his lips as he awarded himself a seven out of ten. <laughs> Moose lingered beneath the surface a little longer than it's necessary, it is true, enjoying the leggy shadows and the livid pools of light. Hmm. But then he did break into the sharper air, and blurred shapes became precise, and the lifeguards seemed to be clapping, and the boy next to red goggles cried, Ill. <laughs> Poolside he stood tall, water streaming from his body. Show off, Freya said. Sportsman, he replied, panting. Big splash, untrue. No water left in the pool, Dad. <laughs> he risked a glance at the tank and he saw that it was full. He told her she wasn't a very supportive daughter. In response, she reached out and touched a throbbing vein in his shoulder. Huh, she said very thoughtfully. There were moments when love burned up in his throat and he didn't quite know how to move. Thank you. Now, are you gonna, are you gonna brave the stool or are you gonna stand up the entire time? You're not, you're not so slippery. Try it. Oh, now you've drooped, that's unfortunate. Pidge's begun. Okay. okay. All right, there we are. Um, so um, the, the, the novel, which, as I mentioned, has had these two in incredible reviews in the New York Times, which it absolutely deserves. Very hard to write a book where everybody knows what's going to happen, right? We, we all know, or you may, may not be familiar with the exact facts of it, but a bomb went off <coughs> in this hotel in 1984. Five people yeah. died. Um, and that moment left an impression on the consciousness of, of everybody who was, I think, alive and sentient at that time. It certainly did on me. Um, 
And so I want, I want to talk about that moment for you personally, um, and also just how you then create a novel that nevertheless is incredibly tense, that makes you want to keep reading even though you know what's going to happen. Mm. So what, do, do you remember the moment, and, and did you decide when you were writing the novel that you were going to be building to the moment? I think when I started writing the novel, um, I knew that I wanted to focus on the lives of some of the people who've been kind of forgotten by history a little bit. Yeah. So there's these fringe characters, and those are the kind of people I'm interested in writing about. Um, and a moment of breakthrough was definitely finding in a little footnote to an article that there was a possible second bomber who had never been found from the IRA. And I started to imagine so, uh, his we'd life. We'd already thought that so there was one man, he was found, he was jailed. One guy was jailed, and then there was this other guy mentioned. And that because there were room service receipts... There for were. Two, for two people in the hotel. Yeah, so a guy checked into, at least one guy checked into the Grand Hotel in Brighton in September of 1984, three and a half weeks before he knew that Margaret Thatcher was going to come and stay at the hotel for the Conservative Party conference. And he called himself Roy Walsh, and he checked into a room, and the receptionist liked him and gave him room 629 because it was a nice room facing the sea, she later said in court. And he planted a bomb under the bath in room 629 during his stay, and then it exploded three and a half weeks later, kind of avoiding detection at the time. He used a VHS video recorder. He did. So 80s. Um, so unbelievably 80s. And, uh, and yeah, when I was looking into it, I saw that there were all these, um, these mentions in court of like room service records of the guy in the room ordering two bottles of vodka two Cokes, two sandwiches, all and at the like, same time. And you're like, he's from Northern Ireland, but still. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a big amount of consumption. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, and lots of people in the hotel spotted a second person. So I started to imagine that guy's life, and then the life of the deputy general manager, who is Moose, who you just heard from, and of his daughter, Freya, who's a slightly sardonic 18-year-old. And um, I, I knew early on that I wanted to focus on the before. The before. To answer your question. Um, but I think I started to see it as a kind of advantage that people knew where the story was going. Because you know that the bomb will go off, but you don't know where the people you care about will be. Mm -hmm. And that seemed like a decent expression. It felt like suspense without it being false. I didn't feel like I was engineering something that didn't happen. Um, I just wanted to try and deeply imagine the lives of these fringe characters and make you care about them and make the novel a kind of comfortable space that you could live in mm. for however long it took you to read it. And then as you approach the final pages, like take that away yeah. and see how you felt. It's incredible. The, the last few pages of the book are incredibly difficult because you're so invested in the characters and you care about them so much. And we know what's going to happen and they have absolutely no fucking idea about what's going to happen. And I, I didn't know... What, I didn't know how it would end. Mm. I'm not going to tell people how it ends, but I want to know if you knew how it ended when you started writing and did you change your mind about it and be honest? I did change my mind about yes, it. Yes, I knew you changed it. Several times. <laughs> I fucking um. love being right. <laughs> not, no. I knew it. Anyway, you're right, you're okay, right. Good. I did change my mind. Um, I also, for a while, I was going to kind of go past the moment of the bombing right. and try and deal with the aftermath in mm -hmm. some way. And I think it took me a while to realize that like, the, the reason I wanted to write this in a way was like I, I read a lot of disaster narratives, I guess. Like I think we all see movies in which 
a disaster occurs in the first 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you see things unraveling from that point onwards. And um, they seem to work on an assumption that you should care about all the people involved. Mm -hmm. But you've not seen any of their ordinary lives before yeah. this moment of, of the extraordinary. So it seemed to me that if I could just try and... I had this book on my desk by Catherine O'Flynn, What Was Lost. Have mm -hmm. you read that book? Yes. It's a wonderful novel, and the, but the main reason I had it on my desk was just the title, because it seemed to me that if, you, if I could try and bring to life the ordinary day-to-day -day existence of some of these people in the 26 days and six hours when the bomb was ticking, um, that I could show by the end of the novel like some of the, the daily moments and like failures and humiliations and... Um, two tight swimming trunks yeah, the budgies that exist in life. There's a lot of humour, I and mean, the book made me laugh a lot, which I hadn't expected nice. it to do. It's genuinely very funny. Um, um, but there's a great quote, which I just want to read further to that, um, where one of the characters says, because sometimes the before is more interesting than the after, no, heading towards the impact. What is beautiful about a dive? It isn't the splash, is it? And that, I think, kind of, for me, encapsulates what's so fantastic about the book is that thing of we know what's going to happen, but, you know, we're with the characters on the way there. So let's talk about who the three people are that we get the perspective of. So Freya is 18. She's having the endless summer after school. Yeah. And she's not going to go to university, or is she? Because her dad didn't go. He's moose. She's kind of, she's weighing it up, I think. Um, but she's sitting behind the reception desk, just bored, shitless. Yeah. Doodling. Her thing. Yeah. She's doodling, like all of her creativity and inventiveness is just going into just uh, defacing the guest registration book. And um, she's waiting for something to happen. She's longing for something extraordinary to, to break up the ordinary density of her days. And of, of course, she doesn't, she doesn't know that well, she has no idea what's intrude. going to happen. By the way, that, that line you read Marina. Marina, I really wish I'd cut that line. Why? <laughs> Because because um, it's exactly what I think of the novel, but there's no place in a, like a novel should not tell the reader what they what they should think of the novel. But I don't. But I think th I think one of the successes. I'm going to cut it from the paperback. It's okay. going to happen. <laughs> News to his editor. Um, <laughs> I, I think one of the things that's very successful about the novel, though, is that you're equivocal about certain things. So um, we hear about the situation in Northern Ireland. Um, and so I grew up in the west of Scotland, which is very much like Northern Ireland, but without the bombs. So um, we had the... I, my mum was Catholic, my dad was Protestant, neither of their parents went to their wedding. Um, I went to a non-denominational school, um, uh, but it was... A society was completely divided along the mm. lines of... Uh, of uh, of which church or chapel that you went to. So in the book, when you write about Belfast, and he talks about curbstones being painted red, white, and blue, that happened on my street. Scarves in the tree that were the, the, the green, white, and gold, absolutely. Right. I, I, it was all very familiar to me. Um, um, and why was I telling you about that? Uh, <laughs> I was just going off on a tangent about it because it felt so connected to me. Um, but what, what I wanted to ask you about further to that was how do you know so much about it? Because you get it right and it's a very complicated area. Like you could so easily, as an English person, fuck that right up. Yeah, and that you was... don't. Thank you. Um, that was a source of stress. Sorry. Uh, you know, I, one of the things that I found most useful was when I... I can see there's some, some writers in the audience, because I've seen some notebooks, and if it was journalists, like, they'd be like, oh, fuck it, there's nothing worth writing yeah. down. <laughs> um, but uh, so there's some writers in the audience, and they may be wondering about research. 
And um, but tell them, do tell them. And to start with, I did start reading a lot of books about 1984. So I was three years old when, it, when yeah. 1984 occurred. Um, and then I ended up like a turning point was giving up on hindsight research. It was. Um, what do you mean? I, I stopped reading things that weren't written in 1984. So my research about the year started to be the newspapers that were published in mm -hmm. that year. Insane. There were IRA memoirs, like lots of IRA memoirs which, which were published around that time, 84, 85, um, talking about that year. And it just seemed to me that, like in the early drafts of the novel, I had lots of terrible exchanges where uh, characters in the hotel would talk about Margaret Thatcher mm. and go back and forth and try and come up with some grand unified theory of Margaret Thatcher. But, but they are equivocal. Some of them are like, oh yeah, they call her the iron vagina at one point. But, <laughs> but other, other, other characters are like, well, she might not be so bad or she's, at least she's strong. Yeah, you know? and she's I think mentioned in passing rather than, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and I, it seems to me that I wanted to start researching based on things that the actual characters might have seen or heard or read at the time mm. and the myopia of some of the characters became something to dramatize you know the fact that they're actually more worried about getting a promotion or like what to do after school seemed authentic to me rather than having them thinking grand thoughts, thoughts about, about politics yeah I, the, the thing about promotion is very interesting Jonathan's previous novel Joy set in a very corporate world about you know what happens in a in a big firm you know promotion and all that kind of terrible tedium um, and and the same thing happens in the Grand Hotel and with the IRA I think that's what's really interesting is that Moose is desperate to be promoted from deputy general manager to general manager equally the terrorists slash freedom fighters in the IRA are talking about teamwork um, and leadership skills um, and, and that I thought was hilarious. I mean, genuinely. I mean, did they talk about that in their memoirs? Yeah, there is a lot about that. I mean, like, so eighties. One, one thing that really came across in the in the IRA memoirs was was a sense of um, like we belong to something that has its own code. You know, we there is a dynamic. It's very hierarchical. Mm. Um, there's the green book. There's various things. That What's you the have green to, book? The green book is a kind of instruction manual that must be memorized by people who want to volunteer for the IRA. And the book obviously opens with an in kind of initiation ceremony, mm. which was based on a few lines that I read in someone's IRA memoir. And I decided to kind of imagine myself into a chapter of that story. But yeah, the, the, the memoirs are full of this kind of odd pride in belonging, you mm. know? And I think that's something that, that work provides as well. And the idea of Hotels are fascinating spaces to me because... Have you ever worked in a hotel? I've never worked in a hotel. Um, I got to hang out at the Grand Hotel a bit, which was exciting. But did you tell the, them what you were doing? I, did, I told them that I was a journalist researching an article. You lied. I lied, and they let me in, okay. which was nice. Yeah. And so you spent lots of time in the hotel just watching people coming and going? Yeah, I was just a lurker. Right. Yeah, that was good. Um... But I, I, the, there are details about the hotel that were fascinating me that I thought, God, I didn't know that. I mean, it's a hotel I go in all the time. I mm. go past it all the time. So, you know, does the, f the guy who works on the front door really keep in the inside of his hat a name of the current VIPs who are staying in the hotel? Or did you just make that <coughs> up? Because there's so many little details like that that are delicious. I don't know if it happens at the Grand, but there are all these 1980s manuals okay. for, like, doorman and uh, bellman and receptionists that are talking about like how to get the most tips out of customers. Right. 
And it was possible to get some of those from secondhand bookstores online and things. Abe Books is a great resource. And so I started reading these manuals and it was full of like, there were, there were tips for customers at hotels as well. Because I guess like 80s were sort of the boom years in, in a way for a certain type of business travel. Yeah. And um, so in one of these, these books, it said like, oh, a really good thing if you're not happy with your room is to go up to the room, light a cigarette, open the mini bar, drink all the whiskey in the mini bar, and then go downstairs and complain that your room smells of smoke. <laughs> <laughs> don't, people who are thinking about the Ace Hotel, <laughs> don't try that. They, they know about that already. They, they only care world. about the smell of crack cocaine. Yeah. Um, so, and we, we, Polly talked about Brighton, we've talked about the Grand, but Brighton is very much a character. I mean, and it's a place that, you know, that is close to both of us and to Polly too. Um, and for me, I, you know, I moved there in 2000 and something. So 1984 Brighton is like, it's like period Brighton. Mm. And, you know, you bring it to life in the most incredible way. It's, it is Brighton, but it's also, it's also not Brighton. And the way that you write about it is aspirational. Um, and it does seem like it must have been something like that for you. Yeah, I think so. I, I remember as a kid um, going to Brighton a lot. You know, we, we lived uh, in a sort of, beige village called Byfleet uh, on the outskirts of London and I think my parents always wanted to live by the seaside but for whatever reason just never did so we would um, I was an only child and they would like drive down in the Skoda 1, 120 um, at the weekends in the summer uh, down to Brighton and we would spend a day in Brighton and we would sit on the, the pebbled beach and eat like cheese sandwiches whilst the wind was like whipping in our faces. <laughs> like definitely the British idea of a holiday. Yeah. yeah. And we would do that. And of course, like the Grand Hotel is so visible. Um, this big white wedding cake of a building. Uh, and I don't know at what point I noticed it. My mother says that uh, my mum had a thing about not wanting her child, and I was the only one, uh, to use public toilets. Okay. You can imagine how fucked up I was as a kid. That's a whole other book. And so she, she said she would drag me into the Grand Hotel to use the toilets right. there because she was confident that they would be up to a certain standard of cleanliness. <laughs> they are very nice. They are. I mean, superb toilets if you're ever in Brighton. And um, yeah, and I heard stories about the hotel at yeah. some point, I think. But it's hard to know, like sometimes I feel like I'm making that up, uh -huh. but I think that must have been the case. Um, yeah. I'm not sure when I started to get interested in it, but it was definitely like on my mind for a while. Yeah. It's so when, when you walk along the seafront now past the Grand Hotel, you can see the scars on the building of, of where the bomb was, and they've never adequately repaired it, have they? I mean, you could sort of try and disguise it, but it's almost like they're almost like they're making a feature. Maybe they're just being cheap. I don't know. But, you know, mm -hmm. the balconies aren't there. The yeah. colour is slightly off. You can see the whole bit that was bombed and destroyed. It's such a strange yeah, thing to keep. It is really interesting. And they, they seem to rebuild it so quickly, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, really like quickly. Early 86, it was open again after having been bombed in October 84. Yeah. And Margaret Thatcher spoke at the reopening and Concord flew low in the south in salute and uh yeah it was and it was obviously it's in your memoir as well beautifully put that um that it was such a huge moment for margaret thatcher because she'd been called the iron lady of course and it had been a criticism for the most part but when you're when the leader of your country survives an attempted assassination 
and then stands there unblinking and says the terrorists will not win and the conference will go on tomorrow morning as usual. Mm. Whilst in the background on the BBC, Bodies. her colleagues are being pulled out of the rubble. Yeah. Marks and Spencers, you know, of, of all it's the British story. things, Marks and Spencers opened early. Just for the Tories. Just for the Tories to, to put on suits because all their clothes were ruined. So it was hard. I mean, it's hard not to respect her in that sense. And I think, I think a turning point for her. That moment, I think, is, is absolutely critical. And I, I do remember that in, in the few days after that, um, she says that she was, she was sitting and she was in, in a window and she watched a piece of sunlight come through the window and the sunlight rested on her arm and she thought, you know, that, that, that was, if they'd been successful, that was never going to happen. And the IRA said, in a press statement, they said, um, you have to be lucky always. We just have to get lucky once. Mm. And it was terrifying. It was a really scary moment. We'll see you back here in a minute. Please join me in thanking the fantastic Jonathan Lee.